0: Proverbs 23, this is the word of the Lord, written a long, long time ago, but God wrote it with you in mind. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil. To acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, (laughs) but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you've eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Apply your heart to instruction your ear to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You can chuckle at that one, it's okay. It's (laughs) one of the funnier ones in the whole book, honestly. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the, w- <clears throat> in the way. Be not among drunkards, Or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. And slumber will clothe them with rags. Listen to your father who gave you life. And do not despise your mother when she is old. By truth and do not sell it. By wisdom, instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For prostitute is a deep pit and adulteress is a narrow well. She lies and waits like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Don't look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder your eyes will see strange things and your hearts utter perverse things you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea like one who lies on the top of a mast they struck me you will say but I was not hurt they beat me and I didn't feel it when shall I awake I must have another drink (laughs) I think that's probably the proper way to read that last verse let's pray Lord God we do ask that you would bless both the reading and the preaching of your word. May we hear from heaven. Oh God, may we hear from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is September, so I guess I can officially use a Halloween illustration. Ah, the groans, I love it. I actually don't really enjoy Halloween. There's one activity I actually do enjoy, though. Uh, and it's from a haunted house, I think it's in Oklahoma or somewhere, somewhere out in the Midwest. And it's apparently one of the scariest haunted houses in America, which, I don't know, I've actually never even been to a haunted house, so it doesn't, doesn't matter to me. But the highlight is about three-quarters of the way through the haunted house, they usher the group in, and it's always a group that they do, they usher the group into this pitch-black room. And while the group is in this pitch-black room, a laser pointer starts shining. And when the room is pitch-black, it's virtually impossible, like a cat, to not watch the red dot. And the red dot starts moving around the room, and you just can't not look at it. Well, of course, they're setting you up. And apparently, behind one of the walls is something absolutely terrifying. I still don't know what it is. But after a moment of following the red dot, the red dot goes into the center of that wall, which is pitch black. And then all of a sudden, the lights hit, and it's something absolutely staggeringly scary. And then it takes a picture at that exact moment. And so this haunted house posts series of pictures of just these groups of people at their most terrified. The first time Nikki and I saw this was probably six or eight years ago. And I think we were crying we were laughing so hard. I mean, I, I don't remember my stomach hurting so bad at laughing at people. Because you get to see in one snapshot all of human passion. And just written large and I love it because you have some where you get to see like a hero you know, where he's got his wife like this and he's trying to protect her I love it my favorites though are the huge dudes who have these little tiny wives or girlfriends and they're shoving the wife at the scary thing as they try to run away I love it because and there's no hiding it you get to see every desire written large on their face You can tell the guys, I mean, he's gigantic, and it's like, have her. I don't care. Whatever it is, you can have her. I'm gone. And like, brother, you can't hide from that. Y'all probably need a little bit of marriage counseling after that, because I'm sure she's not thrilled with you when you got out. I love her. It's great. You get to see the desires of their heart written out in their actions in just one quick little snapshot. And it's amazing how much you can see. Every once in a while, there's somebody who's just straight-faced. Like, What did you do to be able to not react because everybody else is terrified? And I particularly enjoy that, I guess from a pastoral perspective, because so much of life and ministry and dealing with adults is trying to figure out how to get people to see their own passions written out large. It was great doing youth ministry. Teenagers are the same thing as adults. They're just much less sophisticated. And so you can hold up their silliness right in front of them and like, well, fair enough. But adults, we've, we've had so many more decades to try to hide, to try to posture, to try to pretend or rationalize or trick ourselves that the things we're actually passionate about are not the things we're actually passionate about. And in one little snapshot, you can't argue with that. It's like, brother, you said you weren't scared in those things. You were shoving your daughter at the thing. (laughs) You weren't even protecting your own children. You can't hide from that. Proverbs chapter 23, I think, is in many ways an attempt to be that little snapshot and in fact, actually, it's not one snapshot. It's a series of snapshots that are designed to be held up in front of our face to show us what people are like. And particularly to show us what the fool is like. And i would be honest, there are a few things that I think I've interacted with in ministry where people are less likely to call themselves than a fool. I mean, they'll say, oh, I'm bad at this, or I'm bad at that, or I have a weakness here, or sometimes I struggle with that, or sometimes I'm a little, ah, ah, you know, and they'd make the little kind of crazy signal, but don't ever do it. I, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody just come and say, Pastor, I need you to help me. I'm a fool. Let I me mean, think about that. I'm doing full-time ministry now for 15 years, and I don't think I've ever had a single person say that. But the book of Proverbs is written from that perspective where foolishness is everywhere. And wisdom has to be pursued. The odds of me running into only wise people is staggeringly low. And so often when we deal with the fool in the book of Proverbs and other places, we want to kind of caricature the fool to say, well, it's this larger-than-life figure. It's, it's like a clown or it's like a court jester. It's like something that's far off that has nothing in common with me. The fool is the bad guy that I share no characteristics with, but occasionally I make dumb decisions. And that's how we tend to view this book. There are fools... I know some of them, but I'm not one of them. And then I occasionally make poor decisions. And the problem here is chapter 23 is going to cut right through that and say, no, there is a pattern of what foolishness is. And this chapter, more than many of the other chapters we've had to deal with, I think probably might step on our toes a little bit more than others. Because you see, chapter 23 begins to portray the fool as a person who is not in control of their passions. A fool is a person that when they come to interact with the things that they're zealous about or their pleasures or their feelings or any sort of thing like that, those things govern them as opposed to the fool governing their desires. Chapter 23 is the portrait of someone who is entirely captivated by their wants, their desires, their lusts and pleasures. It starts out with an illustration that kind of most of us probably would not have had the full uh, experience in, but a very clear and kind of gripping one. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, a rich man, a powerful person, observe carefully what is before you don't just sit down and start eating. Keep your head up for a moment and survey the lay of the land. In fact, actually, if you have to, put a knife to your own appetite so that you don't eat everything. Because the fool is the person who walks into the room filled with powerful people at a powerful meal and begins to just absolutely stuff their face. I mean translated into kind of modern illustration it might be where somehow somehow you got an invitation to eat with the president and the cabinet and you're brought into the white house and you're, you're brought back into the dining room that only the you know, powerful people eat at and you sit down at the table and food is served and you're like I'm starving and, and just start shoving your face you know and of course everybody around you is like um Do they know where we are? Do they know what we're doing? Have they not yet figured out this is actually food that's not intended to be eaten? (laughs) This is food that's intended to facilitate a meeting, not food that's intended to fill. You see, it's the portrait of a person who's so consumed by their pleasures, their belly so rules them, that when they get in situations where they shouldn't be stuffing their face, they can't even stop then. Put a knife to your own throat if you're given to appetites. Stop your appetites. Him goes further in verse 3. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Well, we've all watched that happen in the spy movies or in the action movies or in the books where the foolish good guy sits down and starts shoveling their face at some point and then find out something was poisoned along the way because they... We're not able to control their own hunger, their own body, their own passions. It governs them. It dominates them. It immediately transitions into a different illustration, not so much one dealing with food per se, but one dealing with money. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. It's not saying don't work hard. I mean, the book of Proverbs has made that point, if nothing else, throughout the thing. Work very hard, but rather don't be dominated by the pursuit of wealth. Because as you're consumed with being a consumer consumed with the accumulation of possessions, consumed with the accumulation of money, you don't realize it's not designed to be grasped that way. Be discerning enough to know when to stop working. Be discerning enough to know when to stop pursuing financial resources. Be discerning enough to know what proper priorities are. How many times have we seen families be sacrificed on the altar of financial independence? Or a parent or two parents says, you know, we just don't have enough money. And they sacrifice their children on that altar. And the problem is, is that right when you think you've attained it, it's gone. It suddenly sprouts wings. It flies away. It gets out of your grasp. It was an easy verse to preach in 2008. I wasn't preaching in 2008, but it was an easy verse to preach in that. I mean, how many people then, they're about to retire. They think they've made their their money. They think they've (laughs) attained financial stability. They think they've got all of their pleasures perfectly locked up in the market tanks. And then all of a sudden, it's all gone. A person dominated by their pleasures, dominated by their passions, dominated here by their money. That's intensified in verses 10 and 11. It it actually is increased to a person who's so dominated by their money that sometimes they're maybe even willing to fudge the rules just a little bit. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless for their redeemer is strong and he will plead their cause against you. Again, remember moving a landmark would have been the equivalent of moving a boundary line. Trying to increase your property size by deception and dishonesty. Here is the portrait of a fool as someone who's so consumed with acquiring. They don't mind bending the rules a little. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, the person's, they're fatherless. They're an orphan. They don't have a recourse. They can't fight back. I mean, they don't even have a clear claim for it because father's gone. I mean, they can't stop me from it. It's not like I'm going to get busted for it. Consumed with their their pleasures and consumed with their passions, consumed with accumulation to the point that it changes even their simple things like what they believe is right and wrong. 20 and 21, it changes gears. Turns to the easy and obvious in one sense, which is going to be highlighted later with alcohol. But again, it turns, don't, don't, back up. Don't ever reduce those commands to alcohol, only to alcohol. Verses 20 and 21, do not be among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. <laughs> I love how those get paired together. Because lots of us, uh, it, you know, good moral uh, suburbia, high-class culture. I mean, drunkenness is not something we do publicly. But that's not actually what the warning is about. The warning about is, again, bodily consumption. It's the sensuality. It's feeding the pleasures of the flesh. Be careful. The fool is the one who feeds the pleasures of the flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. They'll spend too much on those pleasures. That is what will dominate their resources. It will dominate their mind. It will dominate who they are. And slumber will clothe them with rags. This is further encapsulated in 29 through 35, which is a bit of a comical. It makes me chuckle reading it, the way that it's phrased, you know. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? They wake up and don't know how they got hurt. Who has redness of eyes? They wake up bleary-eyed. This is right here. These verses are in the morning of a hangover. Those that spent too much time on their wine, those who tried mixed wine would be the spiced wine of higher quality, most likely higher alcohol content. It looks good. Goes down smoothly. Oh, man, it tastes great. But it bites afterwards. Like a serpent, stings like an adder, and then goes to describe the situation. Your eyes will see strange things. When I worked in the mental hospital watching people detox, oh, my goodness, you want to have, you do that for six months, you will never have a problem with those kind of things to watch the terrors that people see as they detox. It's shocking. Yeah, if you didn't know that, Alcoholism, when you detox, one of the byproducts is massive hallucinations. It's very, very terrible. And most often, the hallucinations are terrifying, and you can't tell that they're not real. And the problem is that when you finally are able to determine that they're real, you still see them, but you know they're not there, which is even worse. But then it continues again. Morning hangover. You'll feel like someone who's stuck in the middle of the ocean on the top of the mast of the boat, and everything's weaving back and forth. You'll say, hey, I, they struck me, it didn't hurt, I'm fine, I'll walk it off, <laughs> I want another beer, get me another drink. You see, what is portraying is someone, again, who is dominated by their pleasures and their passions. And again, the alcohol one is such a good one because it's such an easy caricature, and it's so good because we see those consequences so severely, but it is not simply limited to that. It's all areas of life. I mean, think about what he's addressed already. He's addressed finances. He's addressed food. He's addressed drink. He's addressed, oh yeah, we skipped the section on sexuality. Verses 26 through 28, my son, give me your heart. Let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute, those sexual pleasures, is a deep pit an adulterous and narrow well, the kind you fall down and you can't get back out of. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. You see, honestly, I'll be truthful. This is not the sermon that I've been excited about preaching. I love preaching these proverbs. They're hard, man. They make me work harder than any other passage I think I've preached. But this passage is particularly challenging because the warning that he gives is one that we in America, I think to a person, all struggle with. And all immediately assume that we don't. He's portrayed the fool here in multiple different fashions as the person who struggles because their passions are too great. They can't control their lusts, they can't control. Themselves, They can't control their bellies, can't control their sexuality, can't control their rampant consumerism. And if there's not something that describes America, I, I'm not sure really what it is. I mean, to think about, I mean, just pause and, and reflect on our culture. The excesses of our culture. The excesses of the world in which we live. And the consequences that are just pouring out everywhere. I read an article this week. You all know I like science stuff and I try to stay on top of it and kind of be aware. Um, STI. Adult transmitted infection, if you catch the abbreviation there. New one's been found in the UK that's not been seen in any Western country before. That's flesh eating. Yeah, ooh is right. That's not a good idea. And the UK is trying to kind of figure out how to legislate it because they're the nanny state. And you have people actually going so far as to say, if only there was a way for the government to control human sexuality. A way to kind of sort of manage who people participated in sexuality with. And your theologians are like, if only there was a way to help connect that to two people for life. In a monogamous loving relationship. Maybe marriage, I think, is the correct answer. (laughs) But again, to contemplate just how much of Western culture is defined at its core by excess. I mean, think about, we're Our money is spent as a country in entertainment. Pornography industry, multi-bajillion dollar industry, all about uncontrolled lusts. Hollywood, well, they would love to pretend like there's actual moral virtue underpinning that, but I think over the last year, we've realized that's a lie. It's all about unchecked lusts. I mean, picking the other ones here, uh, rampant consumerism, greed. No, I mean, certainly our country has no problem with greed, right? Right? Even gluttony. I mean, I think there's probably no faster way to get fired as a pastor than preaching on gluttony than maybe preaching on uh, submission and such in the church. But again, the problem. And the interesting thing here, though, is there are two solutions. I, I do want us to address the problem. The reality is, I, honestly, I struggle with this sermon because I really was struggling to think, are people actually just going to check out and be like, man, it's a boring sermon because it doesn't apply to me? But It does. He's going to give two solutions, one that's clear in the text and then one that's going to be implied as to how to correct this foolishness. And neither of them are uh, ways that we particularly enjoy. How do you get to be not a fool? How do you find wisdom and freedom from being dominated by your pleasures? Well... It is intriguing that in the midst of these chapters like this, it's where your parenting information begins to show up. And here you have the one that we all laugh at, or you should laugh at. It's a bit of a chuckle in our current culture in the way it's verbalized. 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. I'm not going to say you need to spank your kids with a rod. I'm not going to say that. I am going to say these passages frame out the purpose of discipline. And the purpose of discipline is to be God's tool to bring those lusts into and, and check. Part of how we are designed to raise our children is to be that balance, to help be a correction to those unchecked desires. Mom, can I have a cookie? Well, any mom knows. If the child asks, can I have a cookie, what are they actually asking? Can I have all of the cookies if you're not watching, and one if you are? (laughs) Right, I mean, that's the correct answer. Is that they know that it's one if mom is watching, but if mom's not watching, they're gonna take them all, as many as they can get, even to the point of being making themselves sick. And so, what does mom do? Mom disciplines. You may have one cookie, and then make sure they're out of reach or whatever. So again, so that there's an instruction process that is designed to train the child's affections, the child's desires, to shape the child's actual passions. And in fact, actually, that's actually the purpose of discipline is to help cut away the bad ones. And I'm going to give you a little bit of parenting advice at this point, recognizing that's about the third fastest way to get fired from a church. (laughs) If the primary emphasis of your discipline is to heal your children through their hurt feelings, you are doing it incorrectly. And I'll put it this way. There's a reason why it highlights the rod. Because if rod, when it's applied in this time and day, your hurt feelings were the least of your concerns. Because your backside hurt worse. (laughs) And particularly for parents of young, young children, if when the child walks out of the discipline encounter and their hurt feelings are the worst thing they have happening to them, you have not gone far enough. Because hurt feelings aren't enough. There actually needs to be a bite to it. And think about this with the way that God disciplines his adults and the way that God disciplines you. Does he ever leave you with just hurt feelings? From my experience, he never has. You always have that bit of sickness or that bit of difficulty. Or that difficult coworker or spouse or friend or oh, it drives you crazy. There's something designed to be the goad to push you into obedience more than simply hurt feelings. You see, part of what this is doing is the discipline process is helping shape those pleasures. It's helping shape those passions. It's helping shape and conform those things to a certain path knowing that it's not you that's going to ultimately change the child's heart, but it's setting them up for success. We get this later in the scriptures, which how do you know that a father loves his child? He disciplines him. And how do you know that God loves you? Is that he disciplines you. And if he doesn't discipline you, he doesn't love you. Wow. But yet again, how many children today are being raised with no discipline at all? They're being raised in in cultures or contexts where it says whatever the child's passions are, I just want to nourish their passion. Please no. Don't do that. If my parents had nourished my passions, I would have died of diabetes because all I would have had were funnel cakes for every meal. (laughs) What funnel cake? There's an entire school of education built around this idea. We'll just nourish the only thing the childs are passionate about. I'm sorry, nobody gets zealous about algebra the first time they hit it. They may, the th- you know, weeks in, but that's not, you don't lead with that. So much of the way of wisdom is disciplining our desires. You may not have caught it. I tried to read it so that it was very, very clear. But in Titus 2 and in Titus 3, he gave a specific list of how wise people are supposed to live. And interestingly, every age bracket that he addresses, he specifically says, you are to live self-controlled lives because that's the path of wisdom. there's probably two different categories of person in the room if you're actually listening. I mean, if you're actually paying attention. If you checked out and you're in a third category all on your own, you're worried about something else later. But if you're paying attention and you're genuinely wrestling through the sermon, you're probably in one of two places. One place, number one, is I want to be self-controlled. I just fail every time I try. Okay, there's actually an answer for that. Category two is, I'm already self-controlled and I got this. And, and you have a different sermon that you need to hear a different day. We see that the answer here in terms of how to correct those selfish desires, how to correct those passions, how to correct that self-control that is so lacking, is interestingly not to aim for self-control itself. See, this is actually what the world has done, and the American culture is just going absolutely wild with this. And I'm going to use an illustration that might offend some in the room, and I'm sorry if I'm going to do this a bit indelicately. But when we talk about the issue of gluttony, The American culture, we have a struggle with that as a country. And so one of the solutions that has been put forth in large portions of the culture is to beat gluttony with excessive control of what I eat, which is weirdly enough called an eating disorder. And it's why our young women in spades wrestle with, I will only have victory over my food when I control it. That's why our young men in their battles with pornography are saying, I will only have victory when I can control it. And friends, that's actually not the answer. You don't find victory over these things by controlling them. You find victory by drowning them with something better. You don't find victory over food by saying, I'm not going to desire food anymore. I'm sorry it doesn't work that way. You were designed to enjoy food. It's interesting. It's one of the first notes that God makes. Oh, yeah, by the way, I made you a garden that's filled with good food. Go eat it all. He's made you for that. The same thing with sexual pleasure. I'm just not going to enjoy sexual pleasure. He made you for that. It's part of the original design of how boys and girls are created in marriage for that to be enjoyed. No, the right answer is actually to drown it with something better. It's to go to the pleasures of heaven itself. That when we we have the pleasures of the presence and the glory of God in our midst, then everything else becomes manageable then and only then. You see, our culture in some ways is starting to clue in on these things to say our problem is our desires have gone unchecked. We've got to create checks, but the problem is the solution that they're giving is so bad. It's try harder, be more regimented, be more balanced, and the biblical answer is be filled with Jesus and then try. Paul works through this theology later in the epistles and he's working through doing everything, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. Filling ourselves with God's pleasure to the point that everything else comes second and may be ordered more rightly and more properly. I would give us just two very quick takeaways as I'm out of time. Take away one: whether you like it or not, this sermon is for you. because one, you're a sinner saved by grace, if you're a Christian, if you're not a sinner saved by grace, well, it's even more for you. But you're an American. and we as Americans are built to favor excess. We love it. This is your sermon. It's just a matter of figuring out where it's your sermon what parts of your life you've built around that idea of excess. And then secondly, to spend time cultivating in yourself and in your friends and particularly in your children that love of Christ that drowns out all of the other things. to cultivate the activities that bring the glory of heaven into our own midst in such a fashion that, you know what, food and sexuality and pleasure and money all pale in comparison. Because otherwise, you have the parable that Jesus tells with the strong man. He tells the story as a teaching illustration of a house where a strong man lives and you don't just get rid of him and then not fill the house. And then all other bad guys can come in and live there and clean and tidy house. You don't just work on correcting bad habits because if you correct one bad habit, another one grows up in the place that you left empty. It's like if you go weed, you know, the berm. Weed the berm, pull the weeds out. Thank you for doing that. We have to figure out how to help fix the long-term problem because weeds just continue to grow. The only answer is to fill it with good things. And in your own life, fill it with Christ. May it be that we as God's saints would recognize our own frailty in the areas where we are pushing our own pleasures far into excess and instead order them in light of Christ and his kindness to us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, forgive us for our sin. I pray particularly that your spirit would work in us this afternoon, this evening, and into tomorrow, this week to showcase for us the areas where we are fools, the areas where we have no self-control, or worse yet, the areas where our self-control is just that self. It's me trying to have victory in my own might, my own power, trying to have victory through me controlling my life. Lord, show us, show us where we fall short, show us our need for Jesus, that we would not be proud people filled with self, but instead desperate people that are filled with Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.